the gist of it was that you don't need the money to benefit from the values and the way of life of old money. And I found it really interesting. So it's not really about the money, but it's more about the values that this particular way of life promotes and instills in the next generation. If you get a hold of a certain set of values, you know, the values that I talk about in the book, you will ironically start acting more like old money. The biggest irony is you'll accumulate money in doing it and following this path. And then you'll set yourself up to have some options on what you want to do. And that's really the whole point of money is I have option. Would you call it freedom in terms of you get to choose? Yes, that's exactly it. You, have, you do have the freedom to choose. That's exactly the word. Welcome to Talking Billions. We talk about big ideas, big inspirations, big topics. We take on the hardest subject of all, money. How to make it, save it, keep it. But our conversations lead us to an even bigger question. What it means to live a rich life beyond money. My guests share their practices, principles, and evergreen wisdom. I'm your host, Bogumil Baranowski, author, TEDx speaker, investor, and a founding partner of Seacard Associates, a boutique investment firm founded in New York City. Join me on this quest to unearth the wisdom of the ages. My guest today is Byron Tully, author of The Old Money Book, How to Live Better While Spending Less, Secrets of America's Upper Class. He's also written The Old Money Guide to Marriage, Old Money Style, and Old Money New Woman. The Old Money book alone has over 700 four-star reviews on Amazon and over 700 star ratings on Goodreads. Byron's popular blog, theoldmoneybook.com, has for the past 10 years discussed topics of personal development and all money culture with a global community of followers. Byron is a grandson of a newspaper publisher and a son of an oil industry executive. He's been an occasional guest on radio and podcasts. We talked about Byron's childhood and upbringing and the inspiration for the old money book, how pursuing old money values doesn't require money and may actually lead to accumulating money, looking rich and being rich, the experience of inheriting wealth or receiving any major windfall of money in life. We'll discuss old money values in more detail. We also explore the importance of appreciating the time and effort that it took to acquire wealth. Finally, Byron shares with us his personal definition of success. We left the best for last, so stay with us until the end of the episode. Byron is joining us from France today. Please help me welcome Byron Telly. Hello, dear listener. I have a small favor to ask. If you're enjoying the show, please follow, subscribe, and most of all, share with everyone that would like it too. It's all word of mouth marketing. It's all up to your fingertips to make a small contribution and become an important part of the success of the show. Thank you. Well, hello, Byron. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Bogomil. It's a pleasure to be here. As you know, I read your book a while ago, and I found myself going back to it, and I was really thrilled that you accepted this invitation and wanted to spend some time with me talking about your book, your findings, your research, and your mission that we just briefly touched on before I hit recording. <laughs> no, it's an honor to be here. Thank you. I always like to start from the beginning, if you don't mind. And I like asking my guests about their own childhood upbringing and their relationship with money. And if you could share your own story, I think it will give the audience a better idea how your book came about and your particular interest in, in this area? I was raised in the United States in a suburb outside Houston, Texas. We ha I had a very comfortable upbringing. There was really nothing that if I wanted it, I, it was available, if it made sense. My parents said no to a lot of things. You know, no, you're not getting a motorcycle. <laughs> <There's>, <laughs> there, were, there were things that just said, no, we're, we're, you don't need to do that. But the opportunity... My grandfather was a newspaper publisher, and my father worked in the oil industry and was an executive uh, for a small oil company there in Houston. I had a very comfortable upbringing as an only child, so my relationship with money was that it was always there. And then I started to realize, I guess around 16, 17, 18 years old, that my family was a little more comfortable uh, and well-off than other families and friends of mine. 
my grandfather sat me down and said, you're going to have to learn how to manage your behavior. He said, you're, you're going to have to learn how to manage that because you're going to have privileges. You're going to be able to take vacations. You're going to have opportunities some of your friends don't have. And you're just going to have to learn how to manage that. And that was really all he said. And so I was like, I had the awareness, but I didn't have any instruction verbally um, to say, do this, don't do that. But I started watching how some of my relatives behave and how my parents behave and how my grandparents behave as they interacted with people. And that shaped my understanding of how you're supposed to behave in general. And then a few years later, I and married my wife who grew up in Boston. And I really understood, I got a, kind of got neck deep into culture of old money. This is how people behave and how they dress when you have had wealth and privilege for three generations or more. Um, and by wealth and privilege, I mean, not just access to money, but to have an education, to have access to the cultural benefits that come along with and the exposure that manners and all these core values that I talk about in the book. All these things, if you're lucky, they come along and you have you learn to embrace them and fix them out, use what you've been given to the best of your ability. And so that was really kind of my upbringing. And in the span between 2007 and 2008, when we had the financial crisis in the United States, my wife and I were living um, in Los Angeles, and a lot of people we knew who seemed to be living much better than we were, quote unquote, were losing everything they had. They had to sell their cars. They had to sell their jewelry. They lost their homes. They lost their jobs. It hit people in a surprising way because I thought, oh my gosh, well, what, are, what were they thinking to have been out in so much debt? We didn't realize they were in debt. They were they looked good, dressed well, they drove a Beamer, they, you know, they lived in the McMansion. My wife and I always thought that if you did that, you always had the money to back it up in cash investments and real estate and gold and all these things that you just stack for a rainy day. We always, were, we didn't really consider ourselves frugal, but we were always very intelligent with our money. And so when I saw this, it took a few years of me being angry and confused when we would talk with all my friends in Boston, and it's like, yeah, the crisis is going on. It doesn't really affect us. Mm-hmm. Well, why, why was that? Well, that's the cultural difference between Los Angeles and Boston in right. general. It's this flash the cash in Los Angeles, and it's this wear a blue blazer until it falls off of you, regardless <laughs> of how much money you have. In Boston, where you don't do that, where you don't, present yourself in an extravagant way. And so after a few years of kicking that experience around, watching, you know, and not watching with any kind of glee or any kind of satisfaction at other people's suffering, it really, it took a couple of, it took a while for me to realize, okay, people need to understand that They don't understand how many wealthy people really live and how they really think. And what they really believe. And my wife was, finally, she said, just stop complaining about this and, and put something down on paper. And, I said, and that's where the book, <laughs> write about that's it. Where the, yeah, write about <laughs> it. That's where the book came from. It was really to try and codify and articulate as, as succinctly as possible mm-hmm. what, what this was all about and how it could help people. And that was really the deal of like, how can I make this accessible to somebody who's working nine to five? Um, and is trying to save money and is trying to dress well and is trying to elevate their life in a real, in very doable way, a very accessible way, a very practical way, very time tested. And, and it has, it's, it's worked for my family. It's, it's worked for a lot of other families that this is what they do. And they grill this. And we'll talk about this maybe later in the interview, but they grill this stuff into their kids. Mm-hmm. And it, it's a way of life and it's a culture that I think was worth on. So that's what really kind of shaped me in my childhood was this awareness, vague awareness that you had to handle, you had to conduct yourself honorably. And that, that was really it. What, what comes across when I'm 
when I was reading your book and rereading it, is that you have this wisdom, knowledge, principles, values that we'll talk about. But as you mentioned now, you had this calling to share it with everyone else because you notice how pretty much everybody could benefit from it, at least being aware of certain values that could help them shape their lives differently. That's, that's how it comes across. I have a quote from your book that I wanted to explore with you, and I really like it. The gist of it was that you don't need the money to benefit from the values and the way of life of old money. And I found it really interesting. So it's not really about the money, but it's more about the values that this particular way of life promotes and instills in the next generation. Could you tell me more about it? I found it really eye-opening. Yeah, saying that, I won't say most, but a lot of Americans will go, oh my gosh, I need a lot of money so I can have a better life or I can have a better standard of living. In a lot of ways, that's true. And in, in, in some regards, that's true. But in a lot of ways, if you get a hold of a certain set of values, you know, the values that I talk about in the book, if you get a hold of that set of values, you will ironically start acting more like old money. But in the, the biggest irony is you'll start accumulating mm -hmm. money because you won't be chasing, you won't be chasing the next product. You won't be chasing the next thing that's going to make some material thing that's going to make you feel good. And when you start going, okay, my values are health. Okay. So health. That means I'm going to exercise. I'm going to eat right. And I'm going to take care of myself. I'm going to try and see the doctor regularly. Great. That's what I'm going to do because you, you can't really mm -hmm. get anything done if you're not healthy. If you're constantly sick, it'll be difficult to be successful. And the next thing, education. Okay, I'm going to educate myself. I'm going to educate my children. I'm going to prioritize my health and my education. All right, I do that. That means that instead of buying an expensive watch that I can't really afford, I'm going to set money aside for a tutor for my kids. Or I'm going to take night classes so I can get a, an accounting degree or I can do learn a skill. I can go to a trade school and learn something that I can really take into the marketplace and make money. And so your values, once you identify those and prioritize those, that starts to shape your decision-making process, whether you're going to stay and invest or spend and waste time and money. And are you going to be distracted with the latest thing on cable news or reality TV It's, it starts shaping all these choices and every value that you take on. And there's not a lot of them. I mm -hmm. talk, I think I'll talk five or six of them in the book and I talk about five or six, you know, core values. But when you take these on, you're going to, you're going to have this slow, sometimes it's quick for people, but most of the time it's a slow evolution into, oh, this is the way I'm living now. And, and I've had people send me emails and go, oh, hey, you know what? I haven't been thinking about it, stacking up money in my savings account because I'm not wasting money doing this. I'm not going out to bars and drinking because I've got priorities realigned. And, and, and the irony is, yeah, you don't have to have money to do it. And even more ironically, you'll accumulate money in doing it and following this path. And then you'll set yourself up to have some options on what you want to do. And that's really the whole point of money is Mm -hmm. I have option, you know, I can, I can go to work or I can start my own business. I can travel, I can take classes. You know, there's, that's the opening that that's the opening in people thinking the, the real uh, kind of epiphany that they have is, oh, <laughs> so this is what money does. Right. It doesn't buy things. It gives you it gives you an opportunity, and that's that's really the difference. You start looking at it like that, and if you see it like that, then that's the real that's the real awakening uh, to see money as as an as an option generating. Would you call it freedom? I'm thinking more in terms of you get to choose. Yes, yeah, I think that's exactly it. You have you do have the freedom to choose. That's exactly the word. So what I liked about that particular part of the book is that uh, what you mentioned. To follow those values, you don't really need the money. And the fact that you do follow those values, the outcome might be that you actually do start accumulating money. 
And I, I found it really exactly. interesting. And, and you and I briefly talked about it, but fortunes come and go. I, I grew up in Poland and I've seen how in Europe over the last 100, 150 years, fortunes were made, fortunes were lost, destroyed, confiscated, and so on. And the values continued in families, even though the money itself might not be as big or might be completely gone, which is really interesting when you think about continuity of passing on some principles onto the next generation. I, I find it interesting. In the book, you mentioned something that you and I briefly talked about, which is being rich and looking rich. And I talked to quite a few financial independence experts that overlap in some way with the principles that you talk about, which is, uh, I would call it moderation, focus on saving and investing rather than spending. But can you talk more about the whole experience? You'd call it personal reality is the amount of money that you actually have. And then the public perception is the amount of money that you want others to think that you have. Two different sides of it, but it's really interesting because we spend so much attention on yeah. talking about media and overall culture on the display of wealth. But you hint that that's not the right path. Can you talk more about it? There are a couple of things, a couple of really important points here. First of all is a lot of old money people will view extravagance mm -hmm. as the fear of poverty. They'll look at people and go, that person's afraid of being poor, so they're buying all this stuff in hope that they will continue to be rich, but they're afraid of being poor. And that's what they'll see extravagance at. The second thing that old money families will or individuals will look at with extravagance or, or conspicuous consumption or display with very expensive cars or fur coats, jewelry, they will look at people and say, well, they have money, but they don't, mm -hmm. they haven't been educated. They don't know how to conduct themselves. And they will look more at the behavior of a person and say, okay, they just haven't been educated. They've made this money. Maybe they're first generation or maybe they married it or they inherited it, but they haven't learned how to behave. The thing is that it's when you buy something and you, you're putting on a display, who are you putting on, on for? If you're putting it on display for people who have less than you, oh, wow, <laughs> charming. You just, you know, oh, look, look at what I've got that you don't have. That's a downward display. You're, you're looking down on people who have less than you do. If you think about it and go, who do I really want to impress? Regardless, it could be if you're in a corporate environment or if you're an entrepreneur, if you're an artist, who do I really want to impress? Well, I think I want to impress people who mm -hmm. are in a better position than me. People who have more money, people who have more education, more experience, more exposure. I think I'd like to impress them. How would I dress to do that? Well, I probably dress a little more modestly, a little more traditionally, maybe. Maybe just wear, you know, there's the minimalist uh, movement that <laughs> kind of goes against the Instagram <laughs> movement now, where the Instagram people show everything they have and the minimalists show everything they don't have. If you kind of look at it and go, okay, who am I trying to impress? And final thing would be, well, maybe nobody. Maybe I'll just dress discreetly and appropriately and sort of what matches my professional aspirations and what matches my personal taste, but without a thought of making a statement and calling attention to yourself by the way you dress. And that's kind of how old money looks at it is, you, you know, I, I talked, this one girl sent me an email one time and said, You know, I went on vacation and they lost my luggage and all I had to wear was my dad's clothes for a week and nobody <laughs> noticed because she was dressing, she was dressing with button down shirts and baggy khaki pants. And so nobody noticed that she was wearing her dad's clothes. It's not that you don't want to look nice, but it's, it's what place does this display and all this energy and all this money that we take up and, and commit to communicating our status to other people. You have to think about that. That's, I guess that's the best way to say it. That's really, that's really my thought. On it. You mentioned something about the, the West Coast and East Coast, and I think it's city by city, but I spent most of my adult life in New York City. And a lot of the things that you mentioned come up to the surface, and people want to show that they are successful. And whether it's the watch, or whether it's the car, whether it's the international travel people start to compare each other and it's it's a game you can't win. <laughs> yeah. yeah, competition competition yeah. is death. <laughs> that that kind of competition is yeah. 
It's a, it's a highway to trouble. You write about the experience of inheriting wealth. And a lot of our clients either inherited wealth or they're in a position to pass on to the next generation meaningful wealth. And also, as a big picture observation, between generations, we will probably have the biggest wealth transfer in, in history in the U.S., but also globally. So I think more people will experience sudden wealth one way or the other. And then obviously, okay. career success, stock-based compensation, all kinds of sources of sudden wealth that are happening. You talk about inheritance, and I would define it also as just sudden wealth or any wealth coming in a meaningful way to somebody. You see it as an opportunity, not just as a windfall of money. And I found it really interesting. Could you talk more about it? And you give examples and stories of people that I would say took it slow just to absorb this new um, experience in life and others that rushed into it. And you had some lessons, observations, and advice about it. Could you talk, talk more about it? Certainly. It's a really good point because most people, I think when most people are 16 or 17 or 18 years old thinking, oh, I might win the lottery or might have a sudden thing, but they don't really think concretely that they have relatives who are going to die and leave probably leave them money. And this is a broader uh, this is a broader occurrence than most people think. Most everyone has a relative in a family situation who's going to leave them some money. Mm -hmm. And it can be a lot of money or it can be a little money. But with the the sudden onslaught, and I'll call it an onslaught of sudden wealth, it can be the best and the worst thing that can happen to a person. And, and you don't, it's, it's completely up to that person to decide how it's going to play out. My observations personally have been, I've had about four inheritances. I'm, I'm not bragging because every time I had, I had a windfall of money it, because somebody died. So I lost someone I cared about and the trade-off was that they left me the money. And each time I had to, the first time I just, I just spent the money. I just partied. It was a great party. It lasted about a week and the money was gone. I really looked at myself and I said, you know what? I did not make a good decision there. I've got to do better next time. And so even people with, even the best of intentions is not going to prevent you from making mistakes in this regard. But I would say the thing that you have to do is you have to honor the what you've inherited or what you've earned. Mm -hmm. And I, I've had people call me and go, I just inherited this amount of money. You know what? Blow 1% of it. Just take, if you've inherited $100,000, just take a thousand bucks and just go party or mm -hmm. do whatever you want to do that's legal and not going to hurt you. Go, just go, just go blow it mm -hmm. and see how fast it goes and see the feeling that you're left with after that 1% is gone. If it's a million bucks, take 10 grand. You know, whatever it is, just take 1% and just blow it and see how that feels and then see how you feel afterwards. And then you can sit down and go, okay, now I got to think about this. But until you get rid of that urge to go consume, I'm not sure people can make a real good decision. So if you limit it to 1%, you're great. And then you have to, you have to think about how can this really change my life? If you inherit $25,000 and you're working nine to five, well, then you have the opportunity, okay, well, maybe I can use that as a down payment on a piece of real estate, an income property or something of that nature. If you've got something like a million dollars and you've inherited that or you've had, you know, you've sold a screenplay or you've had a hit song that got published, you know, you've had a, that got picked up and by Google or something. If you've had a big windfall like that, then you obviously have tax issues initially. You're going to have to talk with a tax attorney. You've got to talk with a CPA. You have to really get that sorted out first and kind of see how much money you really have after you take care of all your responsibilities. If you have student loan debts to pay off, if you have family obligations, whatever it is. And that's going to be a much more sobering number than the initial windfall amount. Because that's going to be the real life number. And then you say, okay, can, can, do I have the opportunity to go back to school? I always wanted to get a college education and now I've got this money. I can get a college education. Or I've always wanted to live abroad. I've always wanted to own my own business. I've always wanted to be an artist and paint for a living. I'll, and it's not about choosing a profession in, or 
choosing, making a hard choice in one direction or another. It's about, okay, how can I go this new life that mm-hmm. I have? I've got this new opportunity. I can make it a new life. What shape is that going to take? What are the, what is going to be the composition of that? And that's the real opportunity rather than going, oh, now I can buy this and buy that and I can live in a new zip code and do all these material things. It's more of what do I have the opportunity to do as far as achieving my potential and fulfilling what I think is meaningful to me. And that's the opportunity to identify and pursue meaning and purpose in life. That money, that's what it really gives you, especially in a windfall situation. I'm, I'm thinking of the age when the money comes and whether it's the inheritance or another source, but I remember talking to my senior partner who's approaching his 80s and he tells me a story of an 18-year-old girl that didn't know that the grandparents had a very meaningful wealth and she received it and was very overwhelmed at the age of 18. Nowadays, uh, with clients, I see that the wealth can come much later in life, so in their 50s or 60s. We all are healthier, we live longer, and the way at least uh, the planning happens is that they receive that wealth at a point when they've already had a career, they've already done things, and it is still a life-changing amount. And I always wonder if you think they're, they had an opportunity to be better prepared for it, or it's equally overwhelming <laughs> as at 18. And, and, and I don't have the answer to it. I think it's case by case, but I find it really interesting that I have those two extreme stories, 18-year-old and a 60-year-old receiving life-changing wealth. But it's, it sets you on a, in a whole different direction depending on the time in, in life. Yeah, I think, I think that would be the hardest thing in the world is to have life-changing wealth thrust upon you at the age of 18. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, you know, that's, that could be a very difficult thing. The benefit that I could see from a 60-year-old receiving a life-changing amount is that perhaps their spending habits have already been set. Mm-hmm. Their sense of who they are is already in place. Um, and some people never figure out who they are and what's important to them. And even some 18-year-olds, you know, I have a I have a second cousin who he knows exactly who he is. And I just marvel. He's 18 and he's like, yeah, that's not me. Um, <laughs> he's like, oh, that's, yeah, I like that. No, that's, yeah, no, that's, that's what I'm all about. No, that's not me. And it's very definitive. And you go, okay, you have to know who you are. Right. And you're right. It's a case-by-case basis. It's not a chronological thing. I think it skews chronologically mm-hmm. uh, where the mistakes could be a lot less um, for someone inheriting something at the age of 60 rather than 18. But I think the sort of imbalance or a little bit of confusion or disorientation that it that a windfall creates is still there for everybody because it's like, oh, wow, things, this is different. I think that's just the nature of money and psychology in people's mind you know, today. You touched on something interesting, the idea to just spend the 1% or a small portion of that windfall just mm-hmm. to see how it feels. I wonder if you know the book Brewster's Millions. I'm guessing you I've do. I've heard of it. Oh, heard, Yeah, I have heard of it. You, you should look it up. It's an older book, but it's, it's I think, 100 years old. But it's a story of someone that receives one inheritance and then the second one, and the requirement to receive the bigger one, which is, I think, 10 times bigger than the original one is to completely waste away the first one. It's, it's a family conflict that's being settled <laughs> with, an, <laughs> with an inheritance. It's, it's a cute story, but it's very deep in terms of human behavior and uh, the whole experience of receiving sudden wealth. And I don't want to give too much away, but I, I think you would okay. enjoy the book, but it has big parallels to what you mentioned, wasting away a small portion, seeing what it feels like to actually grow the appreciation for the rest of it and treating it in a different way as an yeah. oppor- opportunity. I, I really like that. Well, let's talk about the values that you mentioned in your book. You talk about health, education, hard work, politeness, and manners. And I mentioned to you that they, they are very universal values, right? With a, they apply anywhere really in the world. And can you give us a quick introduction of what's behind them? Why do you think they're important? And uh, how do they shape the old money way of living? I, I think you're actually right there. They, they do shape the entire 
uh, philosophy, the entire culture. First of all, there's health. Mm-hmm. And, and health is how do you take care of yourself? You know, obviously smoking cigarettes and drinking and doing drugs too much is just not going to contribute to a healthy body. You can't be productive. You can't get things done. And you can't enjoy life if you're not healthy. The second thing is education. You know, I, I was talking with a friend of mine the other day and I said, you know what? The richest people in the world are making sure that their kids get a college education at the best school so that they can handle the money mm-hmm. that they're going to inherit. The poorest people in the world are making sure their kids get an education so they can just get out of poverty. Every parent that really thinks about it is pushing their kid to get an education and, and doing everything they can to prepare for that. And that is what you need to have to make money most of the time. And it's also what you need to have in order to preserve money and be able to handle like the windfalls we were just talking about. If you get an education, you're going to realize that you're not alone in the world. Your experience is not just you. This has happened to other people before and happening to people, your classmates that you go to school with, uh, even your professors when you're in college. Oh, I'm not alone in this experience of wanting to learn more, wanting to do more, being confused about this, not understanding this, and not knowing how to handle this. And so you draw upon the resources there. And, and so education is just critical. It's just a critical component. Politeness and manners. This is really where, this is really where you see the difference between people who are simply rich and people who've really learned something along the way, either inheriting their money or acquiring and earning their money is how do you treat people that can do nothing for you or nothing to you? This person is just another person on the street and you hold the door open or you're polite to everybody. And it's not easy to be polite in a lot of situations, Mm -hmm. but that's where old money families, you know, there are some, there are some old money guys that are jerks. I mean, people who've inherited money and they're just jerks, but the people who've really got this down understand that they have to be polite because they're in a more fortunate position than other people. The least they can do is be polite to everybody. You want to be modest. Uh, you want to be financially independent. Financial independence is not really a hard and fast benchmark. It's more of a situation of how long can you go without working mm-hmm. to earn money. For some people, finance, they're financially independent for the next week. If they don't go to work next week, they're in big trouble. Right. For some people, they've got, you know, the next three generations covered. They're so <laughs> they're set. For a lot of people, it's like, okay, I can go six months. Okay, I can go a year. Okay, I can go five years. With if if something happened to me and I lost my job, I could make it for this amount of time. That's the level of financial independence. So financial independence, health, education, manners, and and got to do your best. You you've got to do your best at whatever you're doing to honor the opportunity that you've been given or to show that you're worthy for the next opportunity. And so, so these, you know, the work ethic is just key. And so these are very simple. They're very simple things. It's, it's not like I've invented these things. They've been known, but these are the, these are the commonalities that I see with my friends in Boston, you know, the people I met here in Paris and they, this is what they have in common. And you're right to say, it's a global culture. If you meet someone from Buenos Aires or Beijing or Hong Kong or Sydney, Australia, and they've been wealth and privilege for three generations, they're going to pretty much walk and talk and think and pretty much the same. You're going to be able to go, okay, yeah, I recognize that set of behavior and that's what that is. But these, these core values don't dictate that you dress a certain way. They don't dictate you have a secret handshake. There's no, there's no dues to pay, <laughs> no club to join. You know, it's this culture that you'll come to recognize and appreciate. But if you adopt these and put them in front of everything else, then everything else will take care of itself because you're going to be, you're going to have these, this constellation of values that you can look at and go, okay, that feels right because it's in line with. And that doesn't feel right because it's not in line with these core values. And it's simple. And sometimes it's challenging to implement, but it's simple to identify and work toward. 
I, I mentioned to you that reading your book, I thought I'm listening to my grandparents. And <laughs> I'm not it, that old. <laughs> no, in a, in, a good, in a good way, I, I saw this uh, wisdom and principles that were part of my upbringing. And I mentioned to you, I grew up in Poland, and Poland went through half a century of both World War II and then 45 years of communism. So any wealth had to go away, either was destroyed or confiscated. But the values, the principles continued. And I find it really remarkable. And reading your book, I, I realized those principles somehow get distilled and repeated across the whole world. And with clients and with people I met through my career, they came from all kinds of all parts of the world, as you mentioned. And you notice that the same values are cherished all over the world. And it's, it's, it's very refreshing to see that. And it's, it's a universal set of values that help people you know, live better lives. That's how I would look at, look at it. And, and as we mentioned before, the money is not required, but the money might follow. <laughs> yes. Yeah. The money might follow. Absolutely. So when we talk to our clients and we talk about the, the fortunes that we manage, we sometimes say how it's the money they don't immediately need, but it also is the money they can't afford to lose. And it sets a whole framework about thinking about family fortunes over multiple generations. And you and I briefly talked about it before we hit record. <laughs> yeah. And in, in your book, what I'm hearing is long-term thinking and patience. That seems to permeate the way of living that you describe. Can you talk more about it? Long-term thinking and patience. It seems like something that's at the essence of the way of living that you, you discuss. Yeah, it, it absolutely is. There's a there's a concept called delayed gratification, mm -hmm. and it is simply working today for something for a reward that may occur a year from now, two years from now, five years from now, ten years from now, whenever. It's a definite discipline. If you don't have it, it's going to be very difficult to manage money and accumulate any any kind of wealth. And I, I have to say something because. Everybody understands that. You've got to invest. You have to let your investments grow, pay off, reinvest. Everyone understands 20 years of, yeah, I'm going to put in this work and I know that in 20 years it's going to pay off. Maybe I'll be able to retire early. Maybe I'll be able to I'll put my kids to college. Whatever the long-term thing is, what the thing that I think gets the aspect of, of the, that gets neglected is there may be an 18-year-old or a 22-year-old out there who's listening to the podcast, and yet they may say, man, a year from now is long-term for me. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, if that's, if that's long-term for you, that's okay. That's okay because you're, you've got a plan. Then, okay, if a year is long-term, plan for the long-term. Start saving now and see how much money you can have a year from now. And so it, it's not just, oh my gosh, way, way out there on the horizon. Oh my gosh, if I can save up five grand in a year, I can get another car that's going to get me to be able to drive to a job mm -hmm. that I can really make more money at. Whatever it is, don't, you're going it, it, to, this is the thing that, that Amazon Prime and the internet and pop culture constantly erode is the idea. And they, they wrote the idea that something's going to take time. Mm -hmm. you, know, you can go on Amazon Prime, and I heard a comedian joking about it. He goes, he goes I want to order a donut on Amazon Prime and then have Prime show up at my door and put it in my Prime in my mouth now. <laughs> it was this hysterical thing, but it's like we're so, in, we're so accustomed to this instant gratification. We can click a button and we've got it. Right. And the valuable, the valuable things in life, the most precious things in life, are the things that take time, but when you get them, they cannot be taken away from you. If you spend time with your kids, if you invest money, if, you, if you're generous and you give back to the community, those are things that you can't do. You just do them over time. But the payoff, the dividends from doing that are tremendous, but they take time. And so, yes, the, the discipline, the delayed gratification, the patience, the thing is, people go to school for four years at a minimum sometimes and eight years or 10 years in order to simply master the profession that they're going to practice the rest of their life. And so you think about four years, people go, oh my gosh, but you don't think about it that way. No. Oh yeah, you go to college for four <laughs> years. It's like, yeah, it takes time. And so 
you have to apply that time for not only to learn what you need to learn technically in like medicine or biology or law, but time for you to become the person you need to become. And that is, I mean, in your profession, you have your, you have your skill set, you have what you know academically, and then there's what you know from experience and your personal exposure of like, yeah, and which one of those is benefiting your clients more? That's true. Everything, everything that you've seen go into all the water you've seen go out on the bridge or your ability to pick good investments. Well, they're kind of, they kind of go hand in hand. And, mm-hmm. and that's what people have to accept is things are going to take time. Things, sure, something happen quickly. They're sure there's sudden money. Sure, there's an inheritance. Sure, there's a windfall. Right. But you're going to spend the next 10 years learning how to handle that windfall. In the investment profession, we sometimes joke that there's a delayed gratification gene. You, you, <laughs> <laughs> you may be right. I, I, hope, I hope you can develop and nurture it, but I feel that some of us have this predisposition to, to, have a, to appreciate the benefits of delayed gratification. And somehow I'm, I'm the lucky one, if you call it lucky, but I feel like I have that gene. And, and my wife calls me out on it that I, I can wait for things forever if I think that they are worthwhile. It's just worthwhile. But th- there is a contradiction in the way we live our lives because we appreciate the speed. You and I being able to talk across the ocean today, it's technology, it's speed for me to fly, to meet you in person, right? It would take weeks of planning and scheduling. Certain sure. things happen very quickly these days. But then we can pause and appreciate the things that are worth waiting for. And I think for our minds to embrace the two at the same time, I don't want to take a, a boat to travel to Europe. I want to fly to Europe. But once I'm in Europe, I want to sit down and enjoy coffee at a nice little cafe in Paris, right? So I got there really fast. But once I'm there, I want to slow down. And in life and in investing, I think those two happen back and forth. I can quickly look up any company in the world with my computer, but then I might I wait five years for it to deliver the returns I'd like to get. I think exactly the balance, the balance. And I think it's very hard to embrace because we either like the speed or we don't mind the slow, but I think we can benefit from both. And what I'm hearing, listening to you, I'm thinking of creating a desirable future. The choices that we make, they're leading us to a certain future you have in mind. And you talk about the choices, but really consequences of the choices we make today. And certain choices lead us to a future that is desirable. Getting an education takes time, but it will pay off 10, 20 years from now, right? Certain, certain investments that we make in our life, they don't the results right away. But there's a certain future that we have in mind that we aspire to have. That's what I'm hearing. Yeah, that's exactly you mentioned something interesting and, and the sudden wealth topic comes up in my podcast quite a f- came up quite a few times so it's sudden but it's not and and you write about it in your book so you mentioned how when you're deciding to invest a dime you have to think about about the time it took you to accumulate the money but also to think about the time your ancestors took to accumulate it so technically legally the moment when you receive that wealth might be overnight or yes, on a yeah. particular day. But when you grow to appreciate the time it took, right, the sale of a company or an inheritance that is finally in a trust in your name, that happened overnight. But the accumulation took time. And you give that very valuable advice, I think, of appreciating the time it took. And again, being patient and slow. Can you talk about it? I found it really interesting. Appreciate the time that it took to accumulate it. When my father died about 20 years ago, I received some money, um, even though my mother was still alive. Um, and, and what I remember after the grief and after the paperwork was done and after everything kind of calmed down, you know, and kind of settled is the nights that I would be going to bed at 9.30 or 10 o'clock as a teenager and he would still be on the phone conducting business, even though he'd been up since seven o'clock that morning. And the, uh, there, there were just moments like that, um, where I saw how much he worked to, you know, and how much effort he put in in order to create the life 
choices that I have. And part of it, I think that stuck with me. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was really, yeah, I've got to honor this. I've, I've got to honor this. We did very, my father and I did very different kinds of work. He, you know, he was in the oil industry and it was more about creating efficiency in the refinery that he ran and how efficient could it run? What was the product mix that they needed with these different types of byproducts that they created? And, and it was a lot of moving parts, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And, and for me, it's a different thing. I have to sit down, have to have an idea, and then I have to start researching it and find out if this is really worthwhile um, to write about and then write about it and deliver it in the best form that I can. So it's a very different process. But I have the opportunity to I have the opportunity to honor that, not just in not just in the way that I deliver my books in the quality of the books, but also in the way that I spend the money that I've been left. And people have asked you, now why why are you why aren't you doing that? Why aren't you going and buying that? Why aren't you doing that? That's not my money. That, if, if, that's not the way, and it is my money, but it's not the way I would spend it. Mm-hmm. And there's there's two different, there's there's the money I earn. That, okay, if I want to buy something, I'm going to buy it because this is money I've earned. But if I've inherited money, I, I just have, there's too many images. There's too many, there's too much too much on the other side of the scale of the hard work, the savings, and the planning, and the thinking, and the and it's really love. At the, at the end of the day, it's the love that had for me to say, "Yeah, we're planning all this so that you know you're a writer. What are your financial chances? <laughs> if, you know what? Is, really, what are your financial chances as a writer in the world? They're, they can be good, but and they've been good, but." The the reality is they knew the kind they knew what I wanted to pursue and they protected me from the uglier side of of a of a tricky vocation let's say mm-hmm. and so they did that and they sacrificed and they cared and they put a lot of thought into it and I can't go buy a bottle of champagne with that and spray it around a restaurant in Paris you know that I can't do that I can't waste it mm-hmm. and so. That's what I think when, when you look at investing money, and some people have the same experience, except it's them that's earning them. Right. Um, and, and they go, yeah, I did all this work. What am I going to do with this? You got to think. Mm-hmm. You got to, you know, and, and as my dad used to say, you got to walk that dog around the block a couple of times <laughs> to, to see what's really, what's really meaningful and what's really important. And right. How how easy can that money be gone, or how useful can it be going forward? I think we've learned from big uh, billion-dollar, multi-billion-dollar catastrophes in the last decade or two that there's no money that can be lost. You know, there's yes. this, there's this idea: the fortune is so big, you can do anything you want right now. There's no way you can lose it. And we learn time after time there are ways to lose even tens of billions of dollars. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, you can you can you can do it if you work hard at it, or just don't don't pay attention. <laughs> All kinds of financial innovation created opportunities for us to risk. The casino is as big as you want it to be. I I would put it yes. that way. So I think to have that respect for the time and effort that it took to accumulate the money. I think it really changes the way you make all those little decisions, all those little choices. I think it's it's really eye opening, and I'm I'm glad you mentioned it in the book and you shared your very personal story with us. In in my conversations with my guests, but also with clients and, and friends, we talk about time. So we start conversations about money, given my field, the investment field, but I'm always very positively surprised that we start talking about time as the most precious asset that we have. And in your book, again, <laughs> you mention how old money doesn't want, want to waste time. You say you, you can borrow money, but you can't borrow time. And I found it really interesting because we feel like we always have unlimited time, but it's not true. And how we spend our time and how we choose not to waste it has a big impact on how we live our lives. Can you talk about it more 
not wasting time as one of the values of old money. That's one of the things that when I hang out with, with some of my friends in Boston and even some in San, a couple of them in San Francisco, they're going to sit around and, and they're willing to, you know, drink a beer and have a laugh much as the next person if you're really having fun. But when it's just about playing a video game or something that's just, okay, this is a waste of time. They, they cut to it quick. Mm. Like, yeah, you, you're wasting my time. And, and sometimes they're not very polite about it. But that's something that people, is, it's a comforting illusion. I think it gives us, I think it makes life livable that we think, yeah, the end is not here yet. And I can't see it. And that's great. I've got all this time in the world. But there's, there's a moment, and it's, I think it's different for everybody. And for me, I start seeing people in their 60s, in their 70s, they begin to have this awareness, wow, I've got to make the best use of this day. And that's really what it comes down to is the night before, I see so many people, I talk with so many people who are making a list. Tomorrow, this is what I want to get done. I got to organize my day this way, and I've got to make the most of it. May not go exactly according to plan tomorrow, but I, I hope I have a tomorrow when I go to bed tonight, but I want to get this done. And yeah, I've got these longer term goals, but I want to get this done tomorrow. We really want to nail this, these things down. I think that that's a tool that everybody can benefit from is carpe diem. This is it. Mm -hmm. We don't know how much time we have on the planet. Of course, we hedge our bets by living well and eating well and having people around us that love us and being productive and, and having good energy flowing through us. Um, hard work for meaningful pursuit. Wasting time is like, yeah, you're not going to get that back. Tomorrow's a promissory note and yesterday's a canceled check. <laughs> it's like, this is what you've got to work with right here, right now. It's not like you work 24 hours a day, seven days a week, but you, most of the time, you really need to have an awareness of how you spend in your time. And, and the thing that I've harped on and been kind of angry about is social media and the internet. It's like you can spend hours a day on Instagram, on Facebook. And it, it's not your, if you're not promoting your business, be, be careful because, man, you're just looking at a phone. You know, I see people walking through Paris, looking at their phone. I go, what are you doing? You're in the most beautiful city in the world. Look at what you're missing because you're on your phone. And it's, that's a big thing. But I think in general, it's just, there's going to come a time where you're going to realize that your lifespan is finite. And it may be as you watch your children grow or, other family members pass away, maybe whatever it is, but you're going to realize I got to make the most of it. And it's better to have that realization sooner rather than later. And you can't borrow. No, you have what there's you no have. borrowing. <laughs> no borrowing. <laughs> I really like that. Yeah. I, I have a quote from your book and a, a follow-up question that sums up a lot of what we talked about. You write, old money represents a set of values that prioritizes modesty over display investment over consumption, work over idleness, and refinement over brashness. It believes in delaying gratification in order to achieve long-term worthwhile goals. To me, it sounds like a recipe for a life well-lived. Given that you've been writing on the topic for a while, have you noticed that this way of thinking is more uh, broadly embraced these days? That would be my hope. <laughs> that would be, yeah, that would be everyone's hope. This would be embraced. I have noticed, I wrote about the early on on, the, on my blog. I told people, I said, I'm giving you this roadmap. I'm giving you this idea of how you could construct your life and with these old money values and how you, how you can do it. You can do it right now when you have the opportunity to do it and when you want to do it. Or you can do it when you have to do it. Right. That means the economy goes bad. Oh my gosh, well, I got to learn how to really be smart with the money I spend. Well, you, you could have done way back when, but now you have to do it. Mm -hmm. and, and so I hope that people will embrace this because they want to, because they have. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it will benefit people that go, yeah, I have to do this. I, this will be really the best thing for me because I'm on a limited budget and I have these aspirations, these things I want to do. But you just got to make this, you, you've got to take whatever it is that I've offered here and you've got to personalize it and you got to go, okay, that works for me. That doesn't work for me. This is what is really good. This is what's really, I don't really think that works for me and, and embrace it and, and absorb it. And that's the, you know, 
that's what I hope for people. And what I see is, you know, like I said, I see the Instagram group and they're just, you know, going off the rails with spending or, you know, money they say they have that they may or not, may not have. It's all about display and how you look. And then I see the minimalist who are going, you know what, let's just pair back to the bare minimum of what I need mm-hmm. to live and let other things take priority. And that's a great step in the right direction. I'm in the middle of, you know, I'm kind of moderate on, on both those angles of buy comfortable clothes that are good quality and traditional, but make sure you're taking care of your finances and make sure you've got your priorities in line. I don't know which way it's going to go. You and I have hope, you know, for, the, for everybody to be able to improve their lives and have a better life and have a better quality of life as opposed to a standard of living. Quality of life, you know, I, I talked about librarians that I know that have a better quality of life and supermodels that I know who are making a hundred times as much because the librarians know what's meaningful. Right. And the supermodels, they're working on that. <laughs> we all are. <laughs> we all are. We all are. Byron, I have one last question for you that I sure. really like asking and you've been very generous with your time. But I'm, I'm curious about your definition of success and how do you know you're on the right track? And if there is a destination, how do you know you got there? Do you mind yeah. indulging me? <laughs> you know, um, I think I think in a certain sense you can say, oh, that's different for everybody. Um, of course. You know, we, you can't make a blanket statement. But for me, I think to get my message across, mm-hmm. um, in, in the sense of my nonfiction book, um, the Old Money series, to to get my message across and have that have a positive impact on people makes me feel great. You know, I've had, I've had people send me emails and say, Hey, you know, I'm a parent and my son is getting married and we're giving this to all the grooms. We're giving your book to all the groomsmen and all the bridesmaids. It, it makes, it makes me, cr- me emotional right now to think that somebody has that trust in me, mm-hmm. that somebody valued what I wrote when I was just angry about 2008 financial crisis mm-hmm. to have that is that's success to me and i think you have to define it i think it changes over time for me it cha- is changed over time and i think that's something that we all have to just accept that the definition of success changes over time for me it's to be a servant what are you doing that's of service to the community or the world you know however big you your sphere of impact is that is my definition of success is have I been of service um, as, a, as a writer of nonfiction books, it's changing people's lives to whatever degree. And I'm working on some, some fiction projects. And as a writer of fiction, your job is simply to astonish. When someone reads what you've written, are they astonished? Do their eyes go wide and does their mouth fall open? That's the definition of success for a writer is just, oh my gosh. When people do, they go, oh my God. Oh my gosh, I didn't expect that. I never thought, oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. Are they astonished? That's success. If somebody reads something and goes, oh my gosh, I've done my job. <laughs> <laughs> Byron, these are some very beautiful ideals. And I hope this interview will help promote and expose people to the values and, and your writing and everything else that you're putting out to the world. And I will include all the links and everything that will help people find you. So. Thank you, Bogomil. It's been a it's been a pleasure speaking with you, and and I love the fact that you're helping people have their wealth have a meaningful and long term impact. And and what I enjoy about it is that the conversation starts about money, but look, we hardly talked about money. (laughs) (laughs) We talked about everything else that life is all about. So that's that's the beauty of it all. And I think. My pursuit in my career, maybe it starts with money as the topic, but really what we're trying to do is help families live better lives in any way we can. So I think it's it's I, a I worth. Think you're as, I think you're as much a guide as an uh, investment advisor. I find myself in that position and I'm, I'm enjoying it. <laughs> <laughs> That's the main thing. Byron, thank you again so much. Thank you very much, Pokemon. You were listening to Talking Billions. We talk about big ideas, big inspirations, big topics. We take on the hardest subject of all, money. But our conversations lead us to an even bigger question. What it means to live a rich life beyond money. 
If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment and follow, subscribe, rate, and share with friends and family. We rely on word of mouth to promote the show. One click for you means the world to us. Thank you. Until next time, your host, Bogumil Baranowski. The content of this podcast is for general informational purposes only, and so are the opinions of members of Seacard Associates, a registered investment advisor, and guests of the show. This podcast does not constitute a recommendation to buy or sell any specific security or financial instruments or provide investment advice or service. Past performance is not indicative of future results. More information on Seacard Associates is available in its Form ADV disclosure documents available at advisorinfo.sec.gov.